0: Well, it is Thanksgiving weekend. And as we have come back to again and again, we have so much to be thankful for. Families gathered together, warm homes, warm church buildings to meet in, cars that brought us here. Most of us either are still recovering from a large feast or have one in store for us this weekend. Uh, there's so much. And, and if we even think about those a little more carefully, uh, how much are those blessings built on just an absolute abundance, scores of other blessings that we take for granted almost every day? We have so much to be thankful for. And yet, as we list off our blessings, I don't know if you do that as a family, or is that just a TV thing? You sit around, you know, around the table and everyone says what they're thankful for. Um, food. Enough money in the bank to turn on the heat, a car to drive, good, good health, good friends. Um, I hate to come across as the Scrooge of Thanksgiving, but I just can't help but ask, how incredibly fragile are each of those things? And I want to steal the joy out of Thanksgiving, but let's just stop and consider every one of those things that makes that kind of popular list. It's fickle so easily taken away from us, May, like even this afternoon. Who among us has any confidence, any, any true assurance that you're going to wake up Monday morning and have a job to go to? That, that you, as you drive home this afternoon, will find your house still standing there? As you empty the refrigerator this afternoon, that you're going to be able to fill it again as you welcome family and friends in for Thanksgiving, um, that you're going to leave that place still on speaking terms. As you put your kids to bed tonight, that you'll wake up to see them again the next morning and that they will wake up to greet you. None of that's guaranteed. None of those things are things that we can be confident in. We have so little control and so many things that we are... Thankful for, and we're right to be thankful for them, but they are so very, very fragile. Some of you know that as a reality. Some of you are experiencing that not as a theoretical question. You have lost a job. You're wondering where your basic needs are going to be met. You have felt the pain. You are feeling the pain of the loss of a, a parent or a family member, or God forbid, a child. You know what it means. To have those precious things taken. Maybe Thanksgiving is a hard day for you. You feel the sting of loss where there should be rejoicing. One of the most popular approaches to solving that problem is just lower the bar, right? Isn't that what we do? No matter how low you are, there's something to be thankful for. Just find something. We kind of just work our way down the chain. Be thankful that you still have some family left. Be thankful for the time you had together. Be thankful for the little bit of savings you do have. Be thankful at least you've, you're still alive. And, and, and sure, it's good to recognize and be thankful for the blessings we have, even through dark times. I'm not saying that's the wrong thing to do. And yet, therapeutic as it might feel, we just need to call a spade a spade, rely to ourselves. Right? I mean, at some point, where does that end? How far down do we go? I'm just thankful that I have this extra nice piece of cardboard to cover myself. Is that really enough to give you joy? Or is there another way? Is there something else? There is a secret, and I think Paul shares it with us, the secret of unassailable joy, a thanksgiving a rejoicing, a happiness that is not fragile. In fact, it cannot be touched. It's almost too much to hope for. And the answer isn't to to lower our standards and somehow make ourselves happy in smaller and and lesser and lesser and lesser things, but to raise our standards, to set our hope, to hang our joy on something that cannot be shaken no matter what. Um, turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible on you, um, just slip up your hand and one of our ushers will get one to you. We want you to have God's Word open on your lap in front of you uh, as we work our way through this passage. Um, I want you to see this is God's Word. This is His truth. Um, and this is not my wisdom, not by any means. Um, last week, Josh brought us through Philippians 1, 12 to 18, and, uh, and we saw Paul in prison And he's there in in Rome under house arrest. And and there are other believers even who who are preaching the gospel with these devious motives, trying to stir up trouble for him, trying to afflict him even more. And yet that section ends with Paul saying, hey, the gospel's still going forward. And in that, I rejoice. Even from prison, even in the middle of this trial, Paul is rejoicing. He has joy. That ought to catch our eye. But then you you might notice, actually, Josh didn't finish the job. He ended right in the middle of verse 18. He cut it off. How dare he? Well, I don't know if you know this. Those those numbers are just kind of put in there by us. Those are not inspired. That's just our way of helping us kind of know that we're all on the same page. Um, There's a significant transition in the middle of verse 18. The first part of verse 18 is Paul saying, "Yes, I am still rejoicing right now." The second part of verse 18, he, he shifts that. He says, "Yes, I will rejoice into the future." That's huge. Like what, a, what an in, insane declaration This future tense. I mean, it's one thing to say, "I am rejoicing. It's one thing to look around and say. Circumstances as they are currently right now I can tell you I will still rejoice. But it's an amazing feat of confidence to look forward into the future not knowing what lies ahead and say I will rejoice. I will still be happy. How can he say that? Paul, you don't know the future. You don't know what circumstances will come. You don't know what what suffering lies ahead. How can you say with confidence, I will rejoice? And we're tempted to interpret that according to our strategy. Well, he's saying he'll just lower the bar. No matter how bad it gets, he's going to be happy with that. He's just going to lower his standards. And no matter how miserable I am, I will rejoice. That that is not hope giving. I don't want to be in that place. I don't want to have to lower my standard more and more so that I call this happy now. And that's not what Paul's saying. This is a statement of joy. I will have real, meaningful rejoicing. How can he say that? That's an audacious claim. And I think it is this secret of unassailable joy that we need to see this morning. He has joy now. He has confidence that he will have joy in the future regardless of what lies ahead Because the grounds of his joy, the the hook on which he hangs his joy, unlike family, health, wealth, food, any other worldly thing, gives him joy far beyond any of those things and cannot be taken. So what is it? What is the secret to unassailable joy and how do we get that? Well, fortunately, verse 18 He says, he will rejoice. And verse 19 begins with this great word, for. Here's how. Let me me tell you how this is going to happen, why I have this confidence. So follow with me as I read uh, middle of verse 18 through down to verse 26. Paul writes, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is the, the crux of this letter. This is the heart of it all right here. Um, this, is, this is an amazing pinnacle passage Uh, And as we read this, can we just admit that Paul just sounds a little insane? Like, listen to him. He's theoretically trying to choose between prison and execution. And he's saying, I don't know which one's better. I don't know which one to hope for more. They're both so great. Paul, have you lost it? Are they feeding you in there? Like, is this cabin fever? What is going on? How does he talk this way? Well, it's not that he's gone crazy. It's, it's this secret of unassailable joy. I think we can break his secret down under two headings. Two basic answers. He has a sure hope and a singular focus. A sure hope and a singular focus. Let's stop first at the sure hope that we see in verses 18 and 19. Paul says, yes, I will rejoice. And then the first reason he gives for that is, is this confidence that is in verse 19. He says, for I know, for I am certain I will rejoice because I know something. What is it that he knows? What's well, down to the bottom of verse 19 that this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, we want to jump to conclusions there, don't we? That means he's getting out of prison, right? I know that I'm going to be set free. He just finished explaining in verses 12 and 13 how he's been in prison and the trials and troubles there, but I know that this is going to turn out with me being rescued from all of that. That must be why he's rejoicing, right? And yet, if we follow down, that doesn't seem to be the case. I think we feel that. That makes sense to us because that would be the return of his comforts, right? That would be the return of his ability to to chase after his dreams and and, and have the worldly comforts back. His, His list for Thanksgiving dinner has gotten bigger. And we've heard people who would claim Christ speak this way. I can rejoice. I know I can rejoice because God will set me free. I will be healed. I will be provided for. God will give me whatever physical thing it is that will restore my joy. But that's just putting our joy back into those fragile things. And and, and it's seeing God then as as a means to an end. And it's a confidence in something that, frankly, God has not promised you. You have no promise in Scripture that he will heal you from anything. You have no personal promise in Scripture that, that God will restore your family relationships. You have no promise in Scripture that, that you will not starve to death. Millions of Christians before you, right down to every one of the apostles, lived a life of suffering and pain and a brutal death for the cause of Christ. Confidence in God delivering us from present physical trials by, by giving us worldly joy is misplaced. And it's back to that fragile, fragile place of thanksgiving. Look a little closer at Paul's confidence. He's confident that he will be delivered. And then down in verse 20, he explains what that deliverance must, might look like. He, he says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but with full courage now as always Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul, I thought you said you'd be delivered. I'm sure I'm going to be delivered, but I might die. I might be executed. Well, which is it? You can't have both unless his deliverance is something other than physical, unless he's looking at something beyond just the return of his worldly comforts, something that he has confidence in whether or not he lives or dies. I will be delivered even if I'm executed. It's helpful to note that the word there translated delivered is the word sozo, which which is typically translated saved or salvation. And this phrase actually, uh, this will turn out for my deliverance, that's taken straight out of Job. he's, He's referencing back to the Old Testament. Job had everything taken away. Every worldly comfort that that he had everything that he would have easily put his joy into was ripped out from underneath him. You know his story. His family killed all of his wealth and livestock destroyed. His house brought to rubble. His health taken away. And he's sitting there in this pile of rubble, scraping the boils on his flesh with a broken piece of pottery, surrounded by friends who would accuse him of having brought this on himself. Job's Thanksgiving dinner list is short. Like, I'm sure glad that boil hasn't burst yet. Oh no, that's it. Job 13, 15, listen to this. Though he slain me, even if the Lord takes my life, I will hope in him. and I will argue my ways to his face. This will be for my salvation. He's saying, I have hoped in God. I have, not, I have not turned my back on him. I will stand in confidence of that. And this will be for my deliverance. Even if he kills me, I will hope in him. I will be delivered. And Paul's echoing Job here, saying no matter what, even if I die at the hand of Nero, I will be delivered. And it's not just Job. This is actually a theme that that comes through a significant portion of the wisdom literature in Scripture. Um, Psalms picks it up fairly frequently. God delivering the weak, the poor, the downcast. Central to that theme are the words that we see in verse 20, and you'll see this scattered throughout the Psalms, I will not be put to shame. Salvation, deliverance for Job, and and, and through the Psalms, and for Paul here, um, doesn't mean he'll get out of earthly suffering. It's tied up with this idea of being vindicated. I will not be put to shame. That's what Job is saying. I will will argue my case. I will stand in confidence of not getting to the end of my life and being called a fool for how I live, for where I placed my hope and my confidence. Psalm 34 verse 4 is one example. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. And we'll get more into the, into the details of this in the, in the next verse. But the, but the first point is just Paul's confidence. This unshakable joy comes from the fact that he has a sure hope, he's confident that he will ultimately be delivered, that he will not in the end be put to shame. Do you have that confidence? Do you have that sure hope that no matter what happens, God is for you? No matter what happens, you'll be delivered, you will be saved, you will not be put to shame. Not that earthly trials will be taken care of, but that in the end, We'll worship the Lord. In the end, we'll be vindicated for our trust in him. This is very much a restatement of, of chapter 1, verse 6. Remember, he was giving thanks for uh, the Philippians, and, and he says that, that he's confident that he, that God who began a good work in them would bring it through to completion. He has this confidence in them in verse 6, and now he's saying, I have the same confidence for me. And That confidence is the foundation stone of his unassailable joy. Where confidence is lacking, joy is just so quickly eroded. Christian, do you have that kind of confidence, that kind of surety? Can you say, I know that in the end, this will be for my deliverance. Again, with with Job picking up in chapter 19, he says, for I know that my redeemer lives and at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I want to be careful because there are some who do not have that assurance and that confidence, and they absolutely should. And there are others who have ample confidence, and they should not. So look carefully at the nature of Paul's confidence here. What does his confidence look like? Where is it derived from? He says in verse 19, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. There's a, a process here, there's real life things happening right now that give him this confidence. His, his confidence isn't just set on some future point in, in, in eternity that I'll be saved in that moment. He recognizes that his, his final salvation on that day is going to come through their prayers for him. And it's going to come through the spirit of Jesus Christ, that's the Holy Spirit, at work in him. Now this is no less sure. This is no less salvation by grace alone, through faith alone but a recognition that that salvation that God is working out is working through the prayers of the saints and through the Holy Spirit transforming him. Think about it this way. Imagine you're drowning in the ocean. It's pitch black. You're miles offshore. Your clothes are sopping and heavy and dragging you down. The water is cold. Your joints are beginning to stiffen and the waves crash over your head, cutting short your desperate gasps for air. This is it. You're done. There, there's no getting out of this. And all of a sudden, piercing through the dark and the waves, you see a boat. And not just any boat, it, it has the emblem of the Canadian Coast Guard, and it's the most well trained, successful rescue unit of all time. When, when called out, the, the success rate of this group is 100%. And sure enough, Off the boat jumps a rescue swimmer and he comes over to you and he wraps his arms around you, pulls your head above water. He pulls on the rope that's tied to him to signal it's time to pull you both in. You have confidence that you will be saved, that you will stand on that boat, that you will be brought home safely to your family again. Why? You know that you will be saved because you are being saved. Because you can currently feel the arms of your rescuer wrapped around you. Because you can feel your head brought above the water and the air returning to your lungs. Because you can feel the movement of the water against your legs as you're pulled rapidly back toward the boat. I'll be saved because because it's happening now. We ought to have assurance of our future salvation. but, But we can't somehow divorce that from our present salvation. And there's some who are confident that they will be saved on that day. But there's no evidence that they are being saved in this day. Look at your life. Do you see the effects of the work of that Savior? Do you see the Spirit of Jesus Christ in you? Pulling you up out of sin? Do you see repentance growing in your heart and a love for Christ and a, and a hatred toward the sin that you once loved? And if the answer is no, no, I'm pretty much living the same way I used to with the same heart and the same desires I always had. I just now have a confidence that I'm going to heaven. That confidence is misplaced. Don't expect to arrive at a destination if that's not the road you're traveling down. John 1.6, 1 John 1.6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. I mean, that's pretty simple, right? If we say we're following Jesus while we're walking the other way, your words don't mean a lot. You can't have fellowship with God who is light, and continue walking and living in darkness. So if the answer is, no, I don't see the present work of the Savior in my life, then then that confidence is rightly questioned. But if the answer is yes, I do trust Christ. I have grown in my love for him and and I see a a hatred against sin growing in me. And let's be clear, yes, I stumble and fall and I continue to do the things that I hate and and wrestle with this sin that's in me, but I'm fighting against it. But I see the work of the Holy Spirit in me and, and I see something different in me now that wasn't there a year ago. It's small, but it's there. And brother, sister, you ought to have confidence. You ought to have absolute assurance. This rescuer who has wrapped his arms around you, who's even now in the process of saving you, he will not fail. He has never failed and he will never fail. He will, as, as we saw in, in 1-6, complete this good work that he's begun in you. If you lack that confidence, you ought to seek after it. You ought to fight for it. Hebrews 6.11 says, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have full assurance of hope to the end. That you would have earnestness, that you would eagerly seek full assurance of hope to the end. Ask God for it. Spend time reading his word and and meditating on the power of God to save and the promises of God to save. And live in those promises. Walk in it. Trust in the Spirit in in obedience. 2 Peter 1:10. Peter says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. If memory serves, the NIV says to make your calling and election sure. Be diligent to have confidence in the work of Christ in you. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. What are are these qualities he's talking about? It's it's harkening back to verses 5 and 7. Faith. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, and love. It's it's, it's a parallel to the fruit of the Spirit. If you have these things in you, then you should have confidence of the Spirit's work in you. So we want to have this this untouchable joy. We need to begin by laying this foundation stone of, of legitimate, biblically justifiable confidence in our salvation. I've put my faith in the Savior. I've turned from my sin and I'm seeking after him and and again stumble and fall and and muddy myself as I might. There's progress in in seeking after him. And I see his work in me. This unassailable joy comes from that sure faith. But then that sure faith, we're built on that sure faith from a singular focus, a singular focus. He knows that he will rejoice because being 100% sure in this hope that he has, he has wagered everything on it. Look at verses 20 to 26. Let me read those again for us. As it is, my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full assurance now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desires to depart and be with Christ are thus far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary in your account. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. There is a lot in there, and we're not going to get to all of it, but the crux of it is verse 21. To live is Christ, to die is gain. That's his, his eager expectation and hope. His passion and joy, his one desire is that Christ would be honored in his body in, 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 in practical, visible, physical ways. Whether by life or by death. No matter what happens to me, whatever comes... Be it freedom and and ease and and riches or imprisonment and suffer and and wrongful execution. I don't care which road I go down. I'm aiming for the same goal that Christ would be honored through it. For, because, to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he goes on then to just kind of unpack and explain what, what he means by that. For me to live as Christ means, verse 22, if I live on in the flesh, if I'm to continue in this body on this earth, then it's for Christ. My, my life would be spent in, in fruitful labor, he says. His entire life has one focus. If I live, it's this. Fruitful labor, working for Christ. Verses 25 and 26 explain that a little more precisely, what his fruitful labor looks like. It's to continue on with them for their progress and joy in the faith, to encourage the saints, to see see new people saved, to see believers deepening their roots and, and growing in the joy of the Lord, serving the church. And then verse 26 that in his work in serving Christ among them, there would be ample cause to glory in Christ, that, that Jesus would be honored by them for his life. But how does this contribute to his joy? Right? Because labor is not in and of itself a cause for rejoicing, is it? I don't, I don't know how many of you rejoice in work to do. But fruitful labor, that's a different story. If it produces something of value, then we rejoice. That's what it's about. And he says that his his labor in the Lord, his serving the Lord would be fruitful labor. In what way is it fruitful? What does that mean? Well, I think his eye is on the promises of Christ. He's saying in Matthew 16 Twenty-seven. Jesus said, For the Son of Man is going to come, going to return with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. He will repay each person for their their labor. There's a reward in store. Matthew 6, 19 and 20, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Don't, Don't labor and work to store up wealth here where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves work and labor to to lay up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where neither thieves break in and steal. Store up an unassailable joy in heaven. Labor and work for those rewards that can't be touched. By serving Christ, by living for Him. This is exactly what Paul is saying to the the Philippians later down in chapter 4. He's encouraging them to to live generously, to give generously. And he says in in 4.17, not that I seek the gift. I, I don't need the money, but I want you to give. But I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Because as you give generously, it credits your account. There's fruit to it. It adds to your reward at the coming of Christ. That's why Paul's joy is sure. This is his his confidence in future rejoicing because to live is Christ. Because his joy is not resting on gaining comfort or, or ease or friends or food. Those things, those fragile things are not his goal. He hasn't hung his hope on that. His goal is to honor Christ and so lay up treasure, store up reward that brings joy in eternity that that can't be touched. That's why he can say to die is gain. Because his death only brings him into the presence of Christ. And and, and that's the end of verse 23. He says "It's, it's better by far I'd rather die. That's the good place to be. Why? Because death is to finally come into possession of everything he's been working for. To live is fruitful labor, storing up treasure in heaven, and to die is payday. That's why he says, I'm I'm torn between the two. I don't know which is better. Not, Not that he literally has a choice, but he's just kind of theoretically bouncing between these ideas. And he's saying, I don't know, should I stay for, for more fruitful labor to increase that reward? Or should I just be happy to die and receive it and be done with the labor? And I think that's what he's talking about in verse 26. When he says, convinced of this, I know I will remain. Um, he's not making a prediction of the future. Um, by we, we don't have biblical record of what happens after this, but... By all accounts of tradition, he, he died there in Rome. He didn't get set free. He's not predicting he will be set free. He's saying, convinced of this, convinced that my continued life would be to the increase of my reward to come, that's what I would choose. That's what I would, that's what I would pick if I had a choice. That would be better. But Let's not get lost in the details. Let's get back to verse 21. To live is Christ, to die is gain. It's a singular focus. Everything turns on this one pivot point. Nothing else matters. But that Christ is honored, whether it's by life or by death, I don't care. That's my goal. That's how we can say with absolute confidence and assurance, I will rejoice. I will have joy that overflows to rejoicing. Because all of his hope of joy is hung on that which can never be taken from him. Think about what it means to say to die is gain. What is death except the loss of every worldly pleasure? Every worldly thing. In death, you lose your money. In death, at least for a time, you lose your family. You lose your career. You lose every trinket and toy that you've accumulated. You lose your comfort. You lose any hopes you had or dreams for the future, what you wanted to build here on earth. It's gone. Paul says the loss of all of that would be gain. Later in chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, he says, but whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul didn't hedge his bets as we are so prone to do. We believe there will be joy in following Jesus. We're at least suspicious that there might be or we wouldn't be here this morning but it feels risky, doesn't it? So we also want to kind of pick up as many worldly joys along the way as well. I'm going to trust in Jesus and I want to have you know, some extra stuff on the side. I want to diversify my portfolio, right? And so we hang on to some joy in our career and we hang on to a little joy in our, our family and our kids growing up as decent human beings we put some hope in our, in our retirement and, and rest to come or any number of things. We don't want to put all our eggs in one basket, right? Paul would plead with you, when it comes to the precious eggs of your joy, put them all in the secure basket of Christ. There and only there will your joy be both safe and full. when you can say, to live is Christ and to die is gain, when you have that singular focus, it doesn't mean everything else is easy. doesn't mean those trials evaporate. But it means you can continue with confident hope through any trial. If you hang your hope of joy on having a good marriage, a marriage in which you're loved or respected, a marriage that meets your certain needs, and and your spouse doesn't deliver that. They, They don't give you the love that you think you deserve or the respect that you think you need, or maybe that spouse never shows up. That joy is gone. It's crushed. Never to be returned. But if to live is Christ, If the goal of my life and therefore the goal of my marriage is to find, is is to glorify and honor Christ through it, that's where I hang my ultimate joy. That's my goal within my marriage that Christ be honored in my marriage. Then, if your marriage fails to deliver what you had hoped for, things grow cold. It's painful. There's fighting. It's not fun, but you're not crushed. I can still glorify Christ in this. First in dealing with my own sinful part of the problem here. And then in loving my husband or wife in honoring the marriage for the sake of Christ. Not for the sake of finding my joy in marriage, but that in Christ, my marriage might become fruitful labor. you hang your joy on comfort and ease in this life. That's what I want. I just want just to be able to travel. I just want to retire. I just want to be able to work enough that I can relax and, and enjoy. Fill in the blanks. That's where my hope is. Suddenly you're struck by debilitating illness. That fragile joy is gone. It's dashed to pieces. But if the focus of my life is to glorify Christ. If your eyes are set on a a life of all I want to do is store up treasure in heaven by walking in obedience to Christ and honoring him in in anything that comes my way, then this illness becomes an opportunity to, to worship Christ through suffering, to see Christ honored in my body through a life of suffering in a way that no healthy person could do. You have a unique opportunity all of a sudden as you declare by worshiping Christ through suffering that he's better than ease and comfort and health. Your suffering becomes no less painful, but rather than stealing your fragile joy, it becomes a valuable tool for increasing your joy. And you can actually rejoice in, through, and even for suffering. If you rest your hope on earthly things, it's fragile at best, and it's threatened on countless fronts and necessarily limited to the span of this short life. If you want joy unassailable, if you want to have confidence that that Paul had to declare, yes, I will rejoice no matter what happens, without a doubt, now and into eternity, you need to set your heart on that singular focus. Bend every other aspect of your life into this one aim. Be be diligent. Watch your heart. When you feel that, that sense of catastrophic loss when your child disrespects you, you need to dig into that. I've put far too much hope in having respectful children. Be cutting your your heart loose from every other possible source of joy. Be wary of where you find your, your identity and your meaning and your purpose in life. Set it all on that one great goal, that Christ would be honored in your body by life or by death. That life would mean fruitful labor for me in the worship and service of Christ, and then death would be gain. Now, it doesn't mean we don't enjoy other things, right? There's nothing wrong with sitting down this afternoon and sharing the things that we're thankful for, being grateful for these things. We recognize and enjoy the many blessings that God has given us. But there's a difference between enjoying the good gifts of God and and rejoicing in Him for those gifts and hanging our joy on those good gifts rather than on Christ. And let's assure ourselves again, this is not a lesser joy. This is not lowering the bar as we're so prone to do. We, we tend to kind of spiritualize these things in our heads and think of them as less and think, of well, I'll just, I'll rejoice in Christ. Woe is me. I'll give up all of the things that are actually really fun and actually being real joy. And because I'm a, I don't know, good person or I want to impress God, I'll I'll find my joy in Christ instead. It's not lowering the bar. Christ is better. In Him, in that laying up treasures in heaven is actual real joy. Jesus promised Luke 18, truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus says you will not be put to shame. You will not be disappointed. No one, not one person is going to get to heaven and say, Oh, I I wish I had just grabbed a little bit more earth on my way through. I wish I, had, I wish I had just divided my heart a little bit more. I wish I had been just a little bit more selfish with my money. I wish I had enjoyed a little more sin along the way before I got here. No. No, the reward of Christ will be so full, so wonderful, so joy-giving. We'll say that, that there was not a sacrifice left behind when I have Christ. Matthew 16 25, Jesus says, whoever would save his life, whoever would find his joy, his meaning and purpose in this earthly life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, whoever would give up everything for the single purpose of seeing Christ honored and putting their hope in that eternal reward, will find it. What would it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? It's the same word there, forfeit his life, his joy, his fullness. What shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. Church, that is joy Unassailable. That's something that that we can put our confidence in and say, I will rejoice. Even as I go through the most difficult of times here, my hope is set on honoring Christ through whatever may come. It's a sure hope and a singular focus. Let everything else be background. Let your life be set on serving Christ, on honoring him with every, every gift he's given you, every trial he's given you that Christ would be honored in your body by life or by death, by suffering or by health, by wealth or by poverty, by joyful marriage or faithful perseverance or faithful singleness, by prosperous career or a life of humble service, never seeing a single promotion. Do it all for the glory of Christ and you will not be put to shame. What a hope we have. Church, we're going to